Welcome to Energy Sense, the podcast that explores news, trends, and ideas in the energy industry. I'm Jason Roop here with Chris Rawlings, who's the CEO of Bowerbird Energy Contractors. Hi, Chris. Hey, Jason. How's it going? <laughs> and you're also a fellow with the Atlantic Council Veterans Advanced Energy Project. And for people who heard our last episode, they know that we had an event recently where we brought together some some smart people, <laughs> some very smart people who work in advanced energy and national security. And we thought it'd be great to share some of the really insightful answers that we heard. And I know, Chris, this was a big project of yours. And what did you think of the panelists? I thought it was great. I mean, I was very uh, humbled to be a part of of a group of folks that just have that much experience and uh, in-depth knowledge in, in their field. So just uh, humbled to be a part of the group and be able to kind of soak it all in. Yeah. And last episode, we focused on some of the topics related to national security. Uh, we talked about veterans in the in- industry, what the Department of Defense is, is doing um, with climate change, uh, some of the pl- supply chain issues. We had an executive with us from Dominion Energy, which is doing a huge project, um, especially this is big for Virginia, offshore wind. So we really got some up-to-date inside info on where that project stands. I was surprised we ended up talking about nuclear energy. Were you, or is that something you're keeping track of already? No, it's definitely something that needs to be talked about. You know, when we talk about the clean energy transition and transitioning to to renewable energy, nuclear has a, a bad rap historically, right? So you think of Chernobyl and Fukushima and just obviously the waste, nuclear waste and how it's disposed of and all that. Over the years, we've, you know, the nuclear industry has made major changes to correct those issues. But, you know, again, it's been seen as kind of the bad guy, so to speak. The point is, is that baseline energy is still needed uh, where renewables provide intermittent energy. And yes, battery storage is a solution in some ways in that area, but nuclear is is still needed in some parts of the infrastructure. We talked about small modular reactors. It's mm-hmm. the most advanced technology related to nuclear energy, and it's a carbon-free source. So, and we had two panelists who ran military bases, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we had a former commander of Nellis Air Force Base, former commander of Paris Island. Uh, so we had the Air Force and, and Marine Corps represented uh, equally with two former commanders and retired colonels. People think about alternative energy and they're not thinking l- nuclear. So we put that question to the panelists. What is the role that nuclear plays in getting us to this alternative energy transition? So you're going to hear from Ann Loomis. Ann is the vice president of federal affairs for Dominion Energy. So she's in charge of uh, basically what what the company does as it relates to taking positions on federal legislation and anything related to energy production, generation, sale, uh, and transmission. And she also brought a great perspective because she served as uh, chief of staff to uh, U.S. Senator John Warner. There'll also be hearing in this answer from Greg Duque. He's a retired colonel with the, the Marines. Uh, and which, which base did he? He was Paris Island, Paris right? Paris Island. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And <laughs> so he's also the co-founder and managing partner of Red Duke Strategies, and he is the co-director of the Veterans Advanced Energy Project. Here's what they had to say on nuclear. Well, I certainly think um, the public's awareness of the benefits of nuclear has changed dramatically in the past decade. Uh, There were those who are committed to climate change uh, for decades 
who weren't um, on board with nuclear, even though it's a carbon-free energy source, because of the nuclear waste issue that's bedeviled us for decades. But now, you know, we seem settled at least for a good while of storing um, energy, ex- storing nuclear waste on site at our nuclear facilities because it can be done so safely as opposed to a central repository, which was the thinking years ago. The future of nuclear, you know, we thought a decade ago we'd have a nuclear renaissance of building a lot of new baseload nuclear plants. And that has not happened because of the risk of the cost and insurance. Uh, You've got Southern Company building Vogel, which is now going to top out at $30 billion for two units. It's not an investment that every utility can make and impose on their customers. However, I do believe small modular reactors are going to have a major role in uh, nuclear energy going forward. And the focus now is relicensing existing nuclear plants safely through the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. So our Surrey nuclear plant has been the first one in the country licensed to operate 80 years. So we got another 20-year extension, and it takes billions of dollars to get another 20-year extension because you are reworking the control room, being sure it's all state-of-the-art, and that it can still operate um, safely and efficiently. So nuclear at least in Dominion's mind, given it's about 40% of our generating fleet, is a low-cost fuel, can operate very safely and no emissions. So it's central to our energy transition for uh, net zero. Don't consider myself a nuclear expert by any stretch, but just an interesting anecdote. I was over at the Global Energy Forum as a result of of Atlantic Council a couple years ago in Abu Dhabi. And all the uh, energy ministers for the, the Gulf states were there. And the most remarkable thing of the entire conference was when UAE announced their brand new nuclear plant that they were opening that I think that same month uh, in order to not only power UAE, but they were doing, if you will, energy diplomacy with all the surrounding countries. And they were they, they were establishing you know, alliances, you know, trade agreements and so forth, essentially powering goodly parts of the Persian Gulf in an area that, of course, that people, you know, think of uh, petroleum. Remarkable. What was also remarkable was who built that plant? South Korea. Why South Korea? Because they're the best in the world. We used to be the best in the world in this country. And now maybe, maybe we're in the top 10 if we're lucky. Westinghouse was the only U.S. company that was involved in the manufacture of that nuclear plant in UAE. So we've lost something over the years as a result of, you know, our our turning our back a little bit on nuclear power. So I'm so pleased to hear Ann talk about 60 percent. It's pretty impressive. One of the biggest projects in Virginia where we are is related to offshore wind. And we've been watching this project unfold from Dominion down off the coast of Virginia Beach. Chris, I know you've been watching this pretty closely. Yeah, I mean, it's the largest offshore wind project in the country. And, you know, the fact that it's being done right here in our backyards is pretty cool. 
as Ann pointed out, the layers of bureaucracy and the many departments that have to approve a project like that yeah. are, are pretty deep. Everyone from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association to the Environmental Protection Agency to local governments and the power lines, the, the municipalities. Yeah. <laughs> so to generate that power offshore without impeding, negatively impacting the environment to, to distribute and transmit that power to all of the Dominion ratepayers and, and across the state. It's, it's very complex. So it sounds like Anne uh, fights that battle on, on the daily. So its project is 2.6 gigawatts. And in general, it's estimated to uh, power about 600,000 homes. So along with relicensing our nuclear units at Surrey and North Anna. It's a central part of our transformation to meet our net zero goals. We are in the process of BOEM, Bureau of Ocean Energy Management at the Department of Interior, is our lead federal agency, and they are conducting the environmental impact statement, which we expect to get a draft this summer, which then we'll have probably a 90-day or so comment period. And by Q2 next year, we should get our final federal permit. Now, there are multiple federal agencies who are participating in that process because each federal agency has their own individual laws and statutes that they have to meet, as well as comment on the siting of the turbines and how are we having any adverse impacts on aquatic resources out there? We've got the North Atlantic right whale, an endangered species that migrates up and down the Atlantic. So there are multiple federal agencies. Plus, we have an onshore piece that is a 17-mile transmission line to connect the energy from the wind turbines to our 500 kV grid. And that component of the project is also approved by the State Corporation Commission, which we just had hearings on last week. And we had an agreement with the Nansman Indian Tribe and the Sierra Club and a couple others that Dominion has been uh, prudent in proposing the project. But we're awaiting a final decision by the commission late summer, I believe. You know, it's... It's a very complicated federal process, as it should be. It's a new industry, not just, you know, Dominion's involvement in one site, but there are multiple sites, really, from Massachusetts down now to sites off of uh, Wilmington, North Carolina. And they want to have auctions for lease space in the Gulf of Mexico and then, of course, off, off the West Coast. We are learning a lot from our European partners about offshore wind. Uh, we have two test turbines now out in federal waters that are six megawatts. And we put them in and they were energized like in 2019. Now we'll be putting 176 turbines out in this 144,000 acre lease site 27 miles off of Virginia Beach. These turbines now will be 14 megawatts, so more than double the size of the two that are out there. They'll be a lot taller. 
they'll give us more energy from them. And that's how much the industry is changing. But frankly, it remains to be seen, can the federal government permit a major infrastructure project? Because everybody has their own piece of the pie that they look at, like the National Marine Fisheries Service looks at the Marine Mammal Protection Act. The EPA looks at air quality issues from vessels that are installing the turbines. And so you have to get individual permits from each of those agencies in addition to a permit and following the National Environmental Policy Act. So it's a major undertaking. We hope to be under construction um, from 2024 through 2026. I've also been really interested in watching how they built all this stuff mm -hmm. and they they had international manufacturers of parts because we don't really do that here no. in the United States. So they had to build these giant turbines and bring them over. There's really only two manufacturers in the world that do that stuff. Oh, really? So Siemens, Gamesa, and Orsted. So obviously we look at Europe to emulate some of the projects that they've already done right. over there here. And a lot of times because of redundancy and trying to mitigate supply chain risk, they often engage both manufacturers for projects to kind of create redundancy and make sure that they can get the parts needed when they need them. And they had even said, we're so far behind what they're doing over in Europe. Um, not a bad thing. We just haven't really explored it as much. Well, the projects got approved a long time ago. They had a climate change initiative a decade before we did. Yeah. But sometimes you don't want to be the first person to do something. <laughs> Let them work out the kinks, right? Yeah, exactly. Chris, you also mentioned some of the issues with storage with renewable energy. So we put that question to the panelists of what were some of the challenges to make that workable? You'll be hearing from Dave Belote. He's a retired colonel with the U.S. Air Force, a former S-16 pilot, and he's the managing partner and CEO of DARE Strategies, LLC. He also serves on the board of the Southeastern Wind Coalition. I have seen in the last few years, um, you know, as solar costs and utility scale wind costs have just dropped precipitously, we haven't quite cracked the code on battery storage, but we're getting close. And you're seeing an awful lot, uh, a large number of projects that include battery storage. And that's part of the solution. Offshore wind, onshore wind, and solar are complementary because the offshore wind is blowing in the afternoons and evenings that, you know, you've lost your sun, but when you have your big demand spikes. So there are lots of ways of managing everything together on the grid. I'll give you my example. When I first recognized we need the storage thing, on Nellis proper, we had 14 megawatts. And again, now with no storage, Today, with 30 megawatts of solar, Nellis Air Force Base draws nothing from the grid on days when the sun is shining. And in Las Vegas, the sun shines um, 330 days a year. There are 30 days a year with uh, measurable precipitation. Also makes it really good for the solar panels because they always stay dry and the little bit of sand just blows away. You don't have to pay people to come hose them off and maintain. But thinking, thinking the storage, I was also in command of... Creech Air Force Base, um, about 50 miles north in Indian Springs, Nevada. And at the time, Creech hosted all of the ground control stations for every Predator and Reaper drone in Iraq, Somalia, and Afghanistan. 
And one of the security issues that I had, they were single point failures. I knew that there was a cer certain point behind the Indian Springs Casino that a lightly armed Boy Scout troop with Leatherman tools and baseball bats could have gotten to the ground control stations and cut the wires and the entire drone war in the world, American drone war, would have stopped. And we had diesel gensets and our engineers told me it was really about a 0.8 that the diesel gensets would run for 48 hours. And I'm thinking, you know, um, a 0.8 probability of a critical 24-7 mission, that was when I recognized that a great answer is behind the fence generation, probably solar, a small nuclear reactor would be a wonderful thing on any military base because you have the security for it that you don't have in lots of places. But then you need, if you don't have a small modular reactor, if you've got solar, you need the battery storage. And the Air Force is now talking about they just want to buy a microgrid solution that includes EV charging because they are recognizing not only are a number of the non-tactical vehicles across the military fleet going electric, a ever larger number of the people who live off base and work on base are buying Teslas and Ford Mustangs. And I myself have a RAV4 Prime with a 40-mile battery. So we are getting there. Well, the Air Force says there is no way we are ever going to be able to create the infrastructure. So come to us with something that microgrids our base that guarantees load to a couple of critical facilities and has an EV charging network that supplies our government and on-base employee needs. You think that's something Bowerbird could do? Sounds about right. <laughs> you know, I would say that storage, uh, as Dave said, is just something that we've been hoping we'd make great strides in for the, the past decade or two. And we're getting there. Um, I would say it's just diversification of your energy supply sources. So we used to think about it in terms of nuclear, coal, oil, then came gas. So that became a, a big fuel diversity source for us. And now we're doing wind and solar. And they're gonna dispatch as soon as they're generated, if there's demand on the system, because it's free, you know, we're facing high fuel costs today for coal and natural gas. Dominion just had to file with the commission for a rate increase because of fuel costs. You know, offshore wind, solar, the fuel is free once it's built. So that's a diversification that will help our customers. And I think it's just like anything, the more you have of it, the easier it's going to be to integrate into the grid. I mean, we've, yes, it's a whole new way of managing the grid that needs more real-time uh, work, but I think it's just something that's going to come and what we're getting used to. Industry likes to be on the leading edge, not the bleeding edge, right? So that just means that we want to see case studies. We want to see where has this worked previously. I'm going to say something that's probably unpopular with a lot of folks in, in this community, and I swear it's the first time I've ever said anything unpopular. But this is why we need baseload energy like nuclear and like natural gas during this transition, because we don't yet have all the pieces figured out. We know the path of where we're going. Like we, we kind of in general, we know how to get there. 
but the technology you have to wait for these big booms had had we adopted a lot of these initiatives in regards to renewable energy 10 15 years ago it would have been too early right um same thing with battery storage we need to look at where are these rare earth minerals coming from where's the cobalt coming from is it being sourced in an ethical way are these batteries efficient it's not one in one out so how, how much more efficient can battery storage get over the next decade I'm always the one that's coming up with a thousand reasons not to do something because as a small business owner, you're a little risk adverse uh, and you hear no a lot. So with that being said and trying to provide an, an unbiased opinion, we're on the right track. We're gaining momentum. We're deploying battery storage and case studies are coming out, but we're not there yet for full utility scale adoption at kind of the next level. One of the reasons that the Veterans Advanced Energy Project exists is because veterans and advanced energy have such a close connection. You're a case in point, Chris, with your company and with the people that you work with a lot of times. And we recognize that three of the four panelists were veterans. And and while not a veteran, worked with veterans very closely, worked on Capitol Hill. So we talked a little bit about the role of veterans in the industry. So it's interesting. We're, we're in hiring mode right now. I'm in talks with folks that are transitioning out now. So if I would have stayed in, I would have been retiring at the end of this year. So a few of my buddies that stayed in, they're, they're getting ready to transition out and I'm trying to bring them on. Um, you know, as a former aircraft mechanic and a guy that just turned wrenches on jets and helicopters, I didn't think I was going to be able to leave the aviation industry and, and leave that niche. But there's all kinds of military occupation specialties that transition into the energy workforce. As Matt Kellum can probably explain a lot better than I can, there's all kinds of jobs in energy. You can be a JAG officer and then go be, you know, in, in regulatory affairs or something like that in energy. You can be an aircraft mechanic and go start putting in LED light bulbs. I mean, there's a lot of uh, skills that you learn in the military that transition over into the energy workforce. And I also think, you know, when veterans transition out, we just, we want to find that sense of purpose again. You know, when we lace up our boots and we put on our blouse and we see that name tag and we see that Eagle Globe and Anchor, there's a sense of pride. And I think being in the energy industry, there's a sense of pride in what we do as well, because we're serving a bigger purpose. We're part of a critical infrastructure that every person needs every single day. And as we've been discussing on this panel, we're making strides to make sure that that infrastructure stays around for a long time and, and that we're reducing our impact on the environment while we do it. Uh, you can see why we chose Chris as uh, one of our fellows this year. That's pretty much the Veterans Advanced Energy Project uh, mission that he's just outlined there. Um, I'm gonna take, not, not exceptions, I agree, I agree with everything that Chris just said, but I, I think he led DOD off a little bit easy there. Uh, I guess it's my night to beat up on DOD. But industry shouldn't have to retrain an avionicsman or an aviation mechanic or hydrauliksman to be a, a microgrid tech. We did a workforce development panel at the last Veterans Advanced Energy uh, Summit last year. Chris, you may have been listening in on this. And it was a remarkable discovery to learn that the, um, the first, I believe, uh, microgrid in DOD, which is out of Marine Corps Air Station Miramar, couldn't be maintained by service members. They had to bring contractors in to maintain it, and, and they were having a very difficult time finding contractors as well. Point is, DOD is waving the flag over this uh, this microgrid that just got out of Miramar, 
and they they can't even they can't even keep it up and running because they don't have MOSs, military occupational specialties, in order to maintain a microgrid. Well, what's up with that, right? And, and you know, and, and there's so many other skill sets out there that that are associated with not only installation resilience, energy resilience, but also operational energy overseas. So DOD's got a long way to go in, in developing these skill sets. But anyway, with that said, I completely agree with Chris that those small unit leadership skills, those technical skills, but there is a workforce development piece is maybe the point that I'm making right now is that as industry, you're going to get some great talent, not only from military veterans, but from military spouses, another untapped resource. But you're going to have to do some workforce development you know, to make sure that they, you know, they got what they need. They'll bring in leadership skills, communication skills, and management skills. So those of you uh, here from Dominion will know that our former chairman, Tom Farrell, was the son of an Army colonel. So he um, embarked upon a major initiative at Dominion to hire veterans and recruit veterans who were transitioning from military service. We were already fortunate enough, particularly in our nuclear field, to have a lot of former Navy nuclear officers and, and people well-skilled to run our nuclear plants. But I know Tom felt uh, they were perfect skill sets that matched up as far as discipline, training, attention to safety, rule followers. Um, and so you know, it was natural for us to really try and make that connection with those leaving service. But as Greg said, and I think Senator Kane had an initiative to really match up certifications. Like you could have somebody certified in the military to do something, but there wasn't exactly a comparable civilian certification. Or if there was, they would have to do it twice. And that's what we were trying to do is really to take people who had the skill sets that were needed at Dominion and just take them right away and get them to work. Because, you know, if you've been in the service for what, four years or so, the last thing you want to be told is, oh, well, you need to go to school for two years to get a civilian certification for something that you've already acquired in service. So I think that's a big thing with workforce. Uh, and it's a demanding labor market right now. So uh, we're very fortunate for those with military service at Dominion. All you have to do is take a look and count the number of men and women who separate from the military in Hampton Roads every year. And you've got a wonderful pool to reach from if we have the things that grease the skids to make the transition. And uh, I really like how Chris phrased it. All of us who were in for, for years, it was because it gave us a sense of doing something that mattered. And I have you know, loved the last 12 years in the renewable energy space because I went from doing something that I loved to doing something that I love and I, I get to blend the two. That's just a phenomenal blessing in my book. Those are some of the topics we tackled at this panel discussion on advanced energy and national security. I should mention too, Chris, because they were so supportive, some of the sponsors we had for this, uh, the Atlanta Council of Veterans Advanced Energy Project, Dominion Energy, your company, Bowerbird, was a sponsor, of course. 
E2 and the Virginia Energy Workforce Consortium. And we're just really happy to see everybody come together and the, the audience we had. We hope you all enjoyed listening to it as well. I mean, Chris, are you going to take anything away from this and your work with Bowerbird? Well, I think um, first and foremost, thank you to all the sponsors and everyone that attended. Uh, we had a great turnout and I did hear some conversations afterwards. It looks like we might be trying to have a yearly event moving forward. Nice. We could with, do that. With the Veterans Advanced Energy uh, Project and Dominion Energy and some of the other folks around. So I always love a good challenge. I always love learning new things. When I joined the fellowship, I was very intimidated by the knowledge and expertise, quite frankly, of all the other folks that were in the project, some of them working abroad in Abu Dhabi and Singapore, and they're in senior executive roles at companies like Deloitte and Siemens. So to be a, you know, a small business contractor from Virginia, involved in conversations with groups of folks like that, it's just really amazing. You know, when I went to the summit in 2019, which was my first exposure to the Atlantic Council and the Veterans Advanced Energy Project, I was really taken aback by the first video that they played uh, at the onset of the summit, which basically talked about our tours overseas in Iraq and Afghanistan and the wars that we fought for multiple decades over there, how energy resources played a part politically in those wars and also the amount of deaths that U.S. service members incurred in part due to transporting energy resources like fuel wow. um, and, and those service members, you know, unfortunately losing their lives to improvised explosive devices and things like that. Wow. So when I thought about it that way, I was like, wow, you know, I've only really ever thought about energy efficiency and decarbonizing existing buildings and saving people money. And I never really thought about like, wow, I did multiple deployments in these combat zones. And like, I never once thought if we could have created microgrids and reduced the amount of hours we spent on right. roads with that were, you know, littered with IEDs, we could have saved potentially, you know, tens of thousands of lives. So that's what really brought me to, I do need to challenge myself to look at the energy industry as a whole differently and really try to understand the different viewpoints from folks at so many different levels. Because when you look at it from a global perspective, then you can look at it from, okay, well, what are we doing at the federal level? What are we doing at the state level? And then what are we doing at the local level? In regards to my, you know, utilizing it at, at the ground level with the end users, like with my business, it's really being able to have conversations with unit commanders and key stakeholders and the projects that we're trying to get sold and get across the finish line, I can have that well-balanced conversation with them and bring those different perspectives in, especially being in a network of folks that were former base commanders. And, you know, just yeah. getting those different viewpoints is, has been very valuable for me. Um, and I just learned something new every day. Thanks again to our panelists, Dave Belote, Greg Duquet, Ann Loomis, Bob Keefe, and of course, uh, Chris. Thanks for bringing all this together. And you know, anytime you want to have an event at a winery, just let me know. That's, <laughs> that was a great spot. Good yeah, food. Yeah, thank you. Shout out to uh, Brambley <laughs> Park, Bobby Kruger, 
everybody, Carter, for showing up. Everybody that came, uh, thank you so much for your support uh, here locally. And like I said, hopefully we can do this every year. Thanks for listening to Energy Sense. You can follow us on all the major podcast platforms. Please subscribe and share with a friend. We thank you for listening.